0: My name's Justin McClue and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And today, we're talking about a big one, because it's essentially the person that defined martial arts cinema, and I would say, basically has not been topped.
1: I think... Lao Kar-Lung's work, also known as Lu Cha-Lang, I think his work is unsurpassable, actually. There are many conditions that make his work unsurpassable, uh, all of them labor-related conditions, probably.
0: Yeah, that people are not making stuff in a sweatshop film studio, that they were not in a torturous school setting to continually work out every single day until they could do all of these crazy moves.
1: But nevertheless... The legacy that he leaves behind, the martial arts films that he made, uh, cannot be denied. He is arguably the most important martial arts director and choreographer of all time. He has made films such as The 36th Chamber of Shaolin, Legendary Weapons of China, Challenge of the Masters,
0: Mad Monkey Kung Fu, so many amazing movies. He directed about 25 films, and almost all of them have something of interest. And it's a great career to talk about because he continually tried to evolve with the times, sometimes to his detriment, but oftentimes kind of revolutionizing what could be done. And he's also a topic that's a little bit intimidating because it's difficult to talk about. And it's also incredibly vast as well.
1: And before we say that, I would like to mention that uh, he has made a film that everyone interested in Hong Kong action movies has seen, uh, a film that many laymen have seen too, and also one of the greatest martial arts films of all time. And I refer, of course, to Drunken Master 2, also known as The Legend of Drunken Master, starring Jackie Chan, a movie that he was fired from.
0: You know what's funny about that is that I thought you were going to say um, 36 Chamber of Shaolin, which just goes to show how many masterpieces this guy has up his
1: sleeve. I do want to mention Drunken Master 2, also known as The Legend of Drunken Master, because that was certainly the first Laokar Lung film that I saw. And when I was growing up uh, reading such classic works of literature as the the essential Jackie Chan encyclopedia, I Jackie Chan, Dying for Action, The Life and Films of Jackie Chan, all those classic books. All of them tell the exact same story, and it was that Lau Kar-Lung was hired to direct Drunken Master 2 in the mid-90s, and he left due to creative differences. He wanted to show how martial arts was really done. He wanted to show the full glory of drunken boxing on film and have it be really realistic. And Jackie Chan said, ah, realism is boring. Let's do some movie kung fu. Let's uh, Let's mix it up a bit. And of course... You have two tigers on top of a mountain, one tiger will win, and it's the bigger tiger. If
0: I had to take a guess of how it went, though, I bet you Kar Long wanted to get down to the work and do it, and Jackie Chan had a more like, eh, take my time, I'm the boss, no one can press me because I'm Jackie Chan. Yeah, but
1: also I think the conventional telling of the story shows a difference of approach in attitudes towards martial arts on film. I'm sure we'll get into this a bit, but Kar Lung uh, came from a martial arts background. He was a bit of a martial arts purist. Somebody like Jackie Chan wasn't. He did he did his martial arts films early on, but then later on, he would just sort of mix together styles along with a lot of stunt work, just a lot of a lot of goofiness.
0: Uh, but the thing about that kind of story, and you hear that when you get into Hong Kong cinema, it's like this old codger running up against this revolutionary that is Jackie Chan. Is that Lao Kar Lung loved to mix it up and to goof it up
1: all the time in his movies. <laughs> so here's a little bit about Lao Kar Lung's history. He was born in Canton in 1934, and as I said earlier, he came from a family of martial artists. His father was a very famous martial artist named Lao Charn, who was a student of the great Chinese folk hero Wong Fei-Hung, who has been the subject of many films, including Drunken Master and Once Upon a Time in China. And in fact... Uh, Lao Chan, Lao Kar lungs father, acted in the Wang Fei-Hung film series that ran throughout the 50s and 60s. It was kind of the first martial arts film series made in Hong Kong. And, you know, those movies don't look at all like what martial arts movies look like today. But
0: those movies also revolutionized the way that action was portrayed on screen, utilizing weapons martial arts, as well as open-handed martial arts, which was something that you didn't actually see portrayed that much until, like, the 70s when it came to Shaw Brothers productions,
1: early 70s. Lao Kar Leung studied a style of martial art called Hung Kun. Under his father, he endured very tough training throughout his childhood, doing things like standing in the horse stance for hours and hours at a time, you know, uh, very difficult training rituals that, of course, you know, all the all the people who endured this horrible training would then create uh, horrifying training sequences for their films much later on. Like the 36th Chamber of Shaolin is a one long training sequence as a movie. And clearly this was a trauma that bonded, you know, generations of martial arts stars that they somehow worked through in their films.
0: And Larkar Lung worked with his father on those Wong Fei-Hung films from childhood, which led him to just working in the film industry as a stunt person. And when the Shaw brothers began to dominate, of course, he transitioned into their system, working his way up from a stuntman to action choreographer for, who's that? The other probably most famous Shaw Brothers director, Chang Cheng.
1: Now, I am going to pause here for a second to define what the Shaw Brothers is, because sometimes I realize that we talk very fast, and new listeners may not understand these terms that we take for granted, like Shaw Brothers. But Shaw Brothers was in the late 60s and throughout the 70s, the biggest movie studio in Hong Kong. And they specialized in all of the... Well, I mean, they made all sorts of films from dramas to crime films to musicals to comedies to horror films. But they are best known in the West for their martial arts films. And they are kind of like... Close your eyes and think of an old kung fu movie. That's what the Shaw Brothers did.
0: They're the ones who made movies in these big, uh, beautiful sets with a fakey feel to it. Like you can see where the wall ends because it's a painted backdrop. I think that when people think of old school kung fu films, they think of either a Shaw Brothers picture or they think of those fighting in field movies that, like, you know, Jackie Jan popularized as well.
1: And those fighting in field movies. I think were, among other things, kind of a reaction to the Shaw Brothers style, which was very slick and polished.
0: Also, because they didn't have the resources to pull off what the Shaw Brothers were doing, so they are going to, like korea and having to shoot this stuff
1: well the shaw brothers were the most powerful studio and they they had such a dominance they had their own chain of movie theaters all over asia which was something that practice had been outlawed in hollywood with the paramount decision
0: they still have their own chain of movie theaters and they hold exclusive rights to the films that
1: they put out but they also ruled over their talent with an iron fist Shaw Brothers, they had their big studios, but they also had dormitories, basically, where all of the actors and the technicians would live. They would live under these very draconian contracts, you know, seven, eight year contracts.
0: And everybody was paid a flat rate, no matter how big a star you were. You only got extra money when you made a film. You weren't even... From what I can tell, given like a bonus if the film did well, because you were just in this factory setting pumping them out.
1: So if you're somebody like Jimmy Wang Yu, who is the biggest martial arts star before Bruce Lee, and you see your movie One-Armed Swordsman become the biggest movie of all time in Hong Kong, and you are still living with your parents because you can't afford anything else of course you get upset and then you uh, dramatically break your contract and flee to Taiwan. But that
0: film that made Jimmy Wang Yu a hit of uh, The One-Armed Swordsman was directed by Chang Cheh and choreographed by Larkar Lung and Ton Guy who was his partner until Larkar Lung became a movie director. From what I can tell it seems that like Ton Guy was mostly in charge of the weapon stuff and Larkar Lung handled the uh, more open-handed scenes but you know they mixed it up. It wasn't a equal or you know 50-50 split the entire
1: time. Lao Kar Lung worked on all of Chang Chae's martial arts films in the 60s. And Chang Chae is kind of the other most important early martial arts director. And eventually the two of them split. They
0: split over a film that starred friend of the podcast, Richard Harrison, Marco Polo.
1: Yeah, I mean, Richard Harrison, I'm sure, was not much of a martial arts expert, (laughs) so I'm sure they were tearing their hair out trying to teach him stuff. That's right. But from what I've read, it seems that the cause of their split was essentially a disagreement on how martial arts should be portrayed on film. And I think it comes back a little bit, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you know better than me, but it seems to come back to a bit of that Jackie Chan conflict, where- Uh, Lau Kar-lung was more of a purist. He wanted to do more accurate martial arts in films. You know, if I
0: had to wager a guess, I would say it maybe comes down to laziness or like a lack of specific focus in the sense that I can see Chang Che at that point in his career going, I don't care. I am just churning these out. Why does it matter to have to put this much attention on this stuff? And the same thing with Jackie Chan is that like Jackie Chan is going for a specific feeling, but he doesn't have the exactness that is the magical sauce to the films that Larkar Long made.
1: One of the difficulties in talking about a filmmaker like this is so much of the appeal is in the seeing of it. How do you describe viscerally the pleasure of a Lau Kar Lung fight scene and compare it to a Chang Che fight scene? I mean, I, I'm, I find myself resorting to saying things like some of the flips that these guys do.
0: What's interesting is how his style evolves throughout his directorial career, because early on, he's a little bit unsure of how he wants to do stuff. And some of his early pictures, like Challenge of the Masters, where he did the young Wong Fei Hung stuff, first, before In Yu ping and Jackie did it in Drunken Master, is that like in those early Lark Har Lung films, the camera's handheld and following the action. There's more immediacy to it, which is funny when you compare it to like the classics, like 36 Chambers or Shaolin, where what Lao seemingly loves to do is the pinpoint accuracy of capturing stuff, like the zooms, the way the camera kind of trucks along. And that style, we associate it with a kind of almost stodginess to the action. Like, oh, they hadn't figured out that, you know, you can add more intensity by doing handheld camera work. But then, you know, going through filmography, it's like, oh no, Lockhart Lung figured it out. It's just, he didn't like that style. He wanted to do something that was more precise and more like a dance that the audience could appreciate. Because I think the thing that may be difficult for some people when they get into the movies is that they're not always the most dramatically compelling structurally. Is that Lockhart Lung often What really interests him is the dramatic arc of a set piece, like a dance in of itself that you could watch the scene without knowing its context and still gain meaning and an emotional reaction to it. Well,
1: this is what separates a really great martial arts filmmaker from a more mediocre one, somebody who is an actual visual storyteller within the fight scene. I mean, you can watch a lot of like really second-rate martial arts films, you know, a film starring like, I don't know, Bruce Le, the famous Bruce Lee impersonator, and it's just like, okay, you have to have just a certain number of punches and kicks here, and they have to be punching and kicking for a certain amount of time to fill a quota, you know, to fill the time. But yeah, I mean, the Lau Kar-Lung films, and the Bruce Lee films, for that matter, you know, actually actually tell a beginning-middle-end story in each of these fight scenes. I think you are smarter on his fight choreography than I am. I was revisiting bits and pieces of his masterpiece, The Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, and I watched that classic final fight with all the coffins, and I was struck by the sheer density of it. I mean, there are so many bodies, so many bodies manipulating themselves in such complex ways through space and around objects. The increasing complexity of that, the increasing visual density of that, have you observed that in some of his later Shaw Brothers movies? What's
0: interesting about Larkar Long's kind of perspective on martial arts action is that to find interesting ways to present it in an audience, to make it creatively challenging for himself, he has different kind of approaches. So his comedy kung fu films, a lot of the time what he likes to do is like make it like a joke. Like sometimes it'll be a con man. And how can a con man prove that he's invincible by doing these cons, these complex moves? You see that also in Dirty Ho, his classic, where it's like the characters are fighting without fighting. They're pretending that they're not fighting, which, I mean, may sound very odd to people listening to this, but if you watch the film, you will understand instantly. Or it will be an application of like a certain style that he's using tools like uh, monkey kung fu, for example, as ways to approach the storytelling of a fight. That how within these limitations do you present an action scene? I think that what Larkar Lung likes the most is the absence of choice, that if you're given just a limited tool set, how can you do something complex within that and to find really interesting ways to present something that if you told somebody like off the cuff, it would be like, oh, okay, I have an idea of what that is. But Larkar Lung is all about like disassembling that and presenting every aspect to the audience in a way that is very physical and is a perfect mixture of performer and camera work and editing all working as one to create this like uh, musical song on screen.
1: God, that's so beautiful. Well, let's talk about his other most famous film, The 36th Chamber of Shaolin. Oh,
0: yeah, I'm excited because I get to have a hot take on this one.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to go with the consensus on it. This is actually one of the most famous martial arts films of all time. It was widely distributed in North America under the title Master Killer. You can see its influence Everywhere, including and especially the Wu Tang clan, have really taken it as their favorite martial arts film. You know, there's that album title, Enter the Wu Tang. Uh, haven't they used like 36 Chamber just as a, as an idiom over and over again? Yeah,
0: and it's kind of like their logo as well. I mean, the Wu-Tang, especially uh, RZA, he just loves martial arts cinema. I think they're opening a whole theater that is decked out in martial arts regalia and set dressing on Staten Island. So oh, that's fantastic. Ooh, excited about that. I <laughs> want to go visit that.
1: I'll summarize the plot of the film, which unfolds in three distinct acts. It opens with Gordon Liu, who is the Bobby De Niro to Kar Lung Scorsese. Gordon Liu is a normal man, a simple man, a regular Chinese guy whose family is killed by invading Manchu troops. In the second act, he goes to the Shaolin Temple because he wants vengeance. He wants to become a master of Kung Fu so that he can avenge the death of his family. And the monks at the Shaolin Temple say, hmm, that's nice. We don't want you here, but uh, if you can undergo all of this rigorous training— Maybe you can stay here. And the rigorous training unfolds across 35 chambers. And each of these chambers has a distinct skill that it teaches.
0: You got to jump over a pool of water that has a log in the middle and, of
1: it. You know, this is very much, I think, the artistic strategy of the film. Because you see the Manchu warriors invade, and you really want Gordon Liu to have his vengeance. You really want some some kung fu. And then both the monks at the Shaolin Temple and Lau Kar Lung are telling you, "That's nice, but but first you've got to train yourself. First you've got to figure out how am I going to walk across this log to get across the pond." I think I know what your hot take is going to be like. You're going to say that you wish there was more action in it, which I think is fair.
0: No, I think that uh, the structure of the movie is very um, slow, even for the stuff that he had done before this. It's almost two hours long. And I feel like you feel those two hours, even though I can understand that someone sitting there, a movie like this. Give permission to people to go, okay, I understand why this person is doing martial arts, because I have lived with them throughout this journey, them learning all of these skills. So when that satisfaction comes, I don't even need to appreciate the artistry of what's going on because dramatically it's giving me the payoff that I want.
1: That's exactly what I liked about it. And it's in some ways like the definitive martial arts movie, but not necessarily for the action scenes. It's definitive for I all the other stuff, all the other icons. It's the it's the quintessential like martial arts philosophy movie.
0: I mean, listen, it's a four-star movie. I'm not gonna deny it that ranking, but I feel that for me, the stuff that like I really like, he does even better in, you know, a couple films after this one. But as a kind of template movie, it can't be fought with. It does all of the stuff that these kind of movies need to do in a really interesting and compelling way, within a context that feels different and is fun, but I just think that he would master it a little bit later. So it's not the hottest of takes, but I find it difficult to reach for this one if somebody said, I want to see a martial arts film. I don't think I would go to 36 Chambers of Shaolin. Well, I'm
1: going to tell you about A somewhat more action-packed movie that we also watched this week called Legendary Weapons of China, which has some incredible action sequences in it. Although it did help me define one problem that I sometimes have with the Shaw Brothers movies. And I think you alluded to it earlier when you talk about how the dramatic weight of the stories is often not quite forceful. Because there is often a time early on when I'm watching a Shaw Brothers martial arts movie where two people start talking and they're talking kind of in a monotone. They're barking out dialogue at each other where they're like, ha, the Manchu invaders have come and and the factions are at war. Ah, that then you must go learn this style and this and that. And... I always zone out a little bit during those dialogue scenes, you know?
0: Rewatching Legendary Weapons of China this time, I just had a blast throughout it. I didn't think it sagged at all during any of the parts, even though its story is uh, a little confusing if you don't know that Larkar Long has a brother called Larkar Wing who looks a lot like him. Uh, And that is (laughs) a plot point in this movie that I think the film assumes you know both of these people and the slight facial differences, even though they're dressed exactly the same in this picture. Well,
1: I do want to say that I did like this movie quite a Bit, and I kind of let it wash over me. And in fact, Lau Kar Lung and his brother end the film with a stunning weapons fight scene where they go through all of the legendary weapons of China.
0: And just in case you missed it, I think the newest Blu-ray versions have the on-screen subtitles every time they pick up a weapon. It lets you know a new weapon is in the game and this is the
1: name. That's right. And so I'm taking notes being like, okay, I'm going to get this on Amazon later. I was
0: counting them. I was. <laughs> You're going to get the weapons themselves? You're like, listen, I need this rope dart. Who knows what I'll have to use it. I think what's interesting about legendary weapons of China is that it's one of the rare films that Larkar Long moves into kind of the wuxia, almost fantasy swordplay thing. It's not something that he liked to venture in that much. Like, he didn't really do any of the flying swordsman stuff because I think that he had done that so much early in his career that he wanted again to give himself limitations to do stuff but like legendary weapons of china is filled with like essentially like gimmicks and like everyone has a million tricks that they can pull off each one more creative than the
1: last by the way you also ventured into some of the deeper cuts of his filmography because i think i think you were trying to get a better sense of some of the less some of the lesser known ones
0: i just wanted to watch all of his films because according to letterboxd there's only uh four of them that i have yet to watch well
1: i know that you saw some pretty obscure ones did you make any discovery this week not
0: really because the thing about lock Arlong, long especially later on in his career is that i think he kind of came head to head with expectations of what like a jackie chan dominated action scene meant and there's a bit of a um uncomfortableness there once you move past the classic Shaw Brothers period, and he becomes a bit of a free agent. I mean, we both watched uh, Tiger on the Beat, which is probably his last universally loved film that he directed all on his own. Well, This
1: one comes from 1988. So it is after the Shaw Brothers more or less became inactive as producers of motion pictures. And it's very much in that mid 80s Jackie Chan, urban stunt filled kung fu mold and it's a buddy cop comedy starring a wacky chow yun fat and a serious conan lee and they wear ridiculous 80s fashions yeah they're
0: real lethal weapons yeah
1: they investigate a drug ring led by gordon Liu. the big story of this one is that it ends with an incredible chainsaw fight between gordon Liu and conan lee where i mean i'm watching it And I'm sure that there's some trickery, some fakery involved. Oh,
0: but there's sparks flying all over the place. (laughs) It seems like they're connecting.
1: Yeah, it's really hair raising to watch. And you think, well, it's dangerous just to hold a chainsaw. okay? (laughs) and then to have them like sword fighting with. Usually what you
0: would do is you remove the chain of the chainsaw so it doesn't have those cutting edge blades on them, but it still feels dangerous and they would still be heavy. And it's not like they're going to make like big fake rubber ones for the movie, because I feel like Lockhart Long would be someone that's like, it doesn't have enough weight. We got to get more to this.
1: Well, it's an interesting scene to see because it, it feels much more in the mold of like... The the kind of the kind of thing Jackie Chan or Sammo Hung would do at the time where they're kind of like, what's what's the next crazy stunt in the next Jackie Chan movie going to be?
0: I think that like I would have loved for Lockhart Long to have a big, fruitful career after the Shaw Brothers, but he just couldn't. And like Tiger on the Beat, you feel like he's uncomfortable with the whole structure. The film is really messy in a way that his Shaw Brothers films are not. Maybe because he wasn't used to using these kind of resources. But when the action does go off in the last act, there's so much creative stuff going on. Like the famous shot of of Fat putting his shotgun on a rope that he uses to shoot around corners. <laughs> or, you know, all the big stunt stuff that happens. Because, like... You know, Locker-Lung was never a big, painful stunt guy in his films. There were some, and a lot of them were really impressive, but he was all about the intricacy of the action being presented on screen. And in Tiger on the Beat, you don't really get that. So there's almost something missing when you just get like, you know, Conan Lee fighting some dudes in a bathroom and they're smashing through these glass panels and it's crazy. But like you want that shotgun on a string, which you feel is more up to Larkar Long's passions. Like this is what he likes to put on screen. Well,
1: after the demise of the Shaw brothers, I know that his career had some lulls. Uh, Tiger on Beat was a significant hit, but there were some other ones that weren't weren't really hits.
0: Wait, I should point out, we're calling it Tiger on Beat, which is what like the DVD and poster said, uh, but it was fixed to Tiger on the Beat. But it's more fun to say Tiger on Beat.
1: Yeah, I like I like Tiger on Beat, which is the on screen title of the film.
0: <laughs> the person, probably some white guy, who was like subtitling it, like just doing a half ass job.
1: And I know that Drunken Master 2, when it was a huge hit in Asia, revived his fortune for a couple of months until he went and made Drunken Master 3, which because he got fired from Drunken Master 2, he was like, well, I'm going to make a movie that really shows what drunken boxing is. And then Drunken Master 3 was not a big success. And I feel like he didn't work a whole lot after that.
0: No, he was kind of like the legacy guy that they would bring. He could still move and do stuff. I think like one of his uh, final roles was in uh, Troy Hark's Seven Swords as kind of a, again, like, a oh, we'd like to thank you for the work that you've done. So we're going to give you a small role. But even like in Tiger on the Beat in 1988, he was 54 years old. So he was getting up there in years (laughs) when he was demanding to uh, do all these crazy action scenes. But like he has tons of famous fights. He acted in a lot of stuff. He has the best scene of Sammo Hung's pedicab driver, where he takes on Sammo Hung in like a stick fight, which is amazing. So he was still around, but you almost feel like the producers believed that, you know, the industry had moved beyond him and that like, you know, we'll keep you around, do little stuff here or there. But he did not have that structure of the Shaw brothers to allow him to just continue making films, experiment
1: and do interesting stuff.
0: But if people have been listening to this and they've never seen any of his films... Would you recommend 36 Chambers of Shaolin as like the first one that they should Not go necessarily.
1: to? Although, I mean, generations of people have been watching it and enjoying it. So I don't know. Maybe it would work for people. But I think I would recommend The Eight Diagram Pole Fighter just to show like what he was capable of and indeed what what human beings are capable of, you know?
0: We didn't talk too much about Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, but what's interesting about that one is it's also a film that is angrier than anything that he's ever done, more violent than anything he's really done other than the stuff he did with. Chang Che, because at the time, the uh, co-star of the film, Alexander Fusheng, uh, passed away in a car accident while filming the film. And you can feel those kind of like emotional shockwaves run through the end of the picture. I mean, I would say people check that one out. And also check out Heroes of the East, which is a great comedy kung fu film where uh, Gordon Liu plays like a Chinese man who marries a Japanese woman, and they get into a fight every day about what is better, Chinese martial arts or Japanese martial arts. And then Gordon Liu's wife's family shows up and he has to fight like every style of Japanese martial arts. And it's not like an insulting picture. It's uh, one like that obviously loves like the different forms of Chinese and Japanese styles, but it's also one that's comedic. It moves really quickly and gives a lot of variety. So people may not just get, tired of just watching, like, you know, martial arts play on screen, which I could understand if people check out something like Dirty Ho, for example.
1: When you watch him at his best, you see the pinnacle of a certain kind of human achievement.
0: Absolutely. And I think that if more people can be aware of him, because I don't even think he's a name as common as like Yuwo ping to people, because he never had any Hollywood work. Actually, that's a lie. Do you know what Larkar Long actually choreographed? And this is on record that it's true. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. Wow.
1: Okay. I might I might actually have to check that one out then.
0: <laughs> Not famous for its action scenes. <laughs>
1: you know who was a stuntman on that film? Oh, who? Bruce Laugh.
0: Wow. What a, a gallery of stars on that. All right. So as per usual, if you have any letters, you can email us at Podcast at gmail.com. And we have a letter here from Alexander Ross, and he goes, 300th episode suggestion. Hey, guys, last episode, there was some discussion about what the 300th episode was going to be about, and I was appalled that you only talked about Shrek and James Bond. Those series have already been done to death by every film podcast ever. The ICC is better than that. And there is one film series which no film podcast has touched. The longest film series in history. I'm of course talking about the Tora San series, an epic tale spanning five decades, 48 movies, and almost all made by one director. Starts as a silly comedy, but ends up being about deaths and the passage of time. What's there not to love? The question is, do you have what it takes?
1: Kind regards, Alexander Ross. I've actually never watched a Torasan movie. I am aware of them, though. I'm ashamed to say that I am not aware of them. What What are the Torasan movies?
0: They're like Japanese films. And like he said, they're about like, this one actor and, you know, every movie kind of explores his life and because they lasted so long, it essentially becomes like uh, Beyond Sunrise, but just in really long movie form. There's specifically a Japanese thing. And as I said on this episode, I have never had the same affinity for like Japanese cinema, which I do really like, as like the rest of the world. <laughs> like. I look on Letterboxd and people are just logging
1: Japanese films like crazy. And I was like, I wish I could have the same passion for those. I mean, I'm very interested in the Taurus and series. I mean, it sounds you like... You love
0: like movies that document someone's life as they wither away. Yeah, I
1: mean, I, I like those Truffaut movies about Antoine Doinel, And I mean, they only they only keep up to him in his mid-30s. But the
0: issue with that is that that's way too many movies. That turns into a TV series, which Will does not watch <laughs>
1: when they're that long. That, that's true. That's and true.
0: And for the 300th episode, look... We have to do something that everybody knows. We want people to click on it. So that's why we say stuff like Shrek and James Bond. We need those clicks, those big milestones.
1: It probably won't be
0: Shrek. No, it won't be Shrek. Or will it be? <laughs> oh, wait, I should point out before I forget that we're doing a drive on Patreon to get 400 subscribers by the end of the month. And if we do, me and Will will subject ourselves to another movie marathon. If you guys missed out on our earnest a thon which uh, I pity you because it was great. Will went insane watching them. Uh, you're going to want to subscribe to this. Tell your friends to subscribe. Family, get everybody in there so we get to 400 uh, subscribers. You can go on the Patreon once you have subscribed and you can vote on which one you want as well. I believe the American Pie saga is leading. Uh, The real uh, black horse, I didn't think that that one was going to lead.
1: So what are the other options they can choose from aside from all the American films? Uh, not
0: all the American Pie films. <laughs> five American
1: Oh, uh, well, films. Sorry, all the theatrical yes. ones. I think
0: we would probably have to do one DTV one to fit that five movie rule. Uh, but the other ones are uh, John Cleese needs a paycheck where we would watch, uh, you know, bad John Cleese movies, which other than the ones he did with Monty Python, uh, pretty much everyone except for A Fish Called Wanda. Yeah. <laughs> um, we would also do The Last Days of Jackie Chan in Hollywood, because, you know, we haven't talked about that enough. (laughs) And wait, what is the other one? I don't remember. Oh, it's the DreamWorks films, uh, No Shreks Allowed. So like Shark Tale, (laughs) Bee Movie... Uh, some other ones in there that DreamWorks did some real stinkers I mean that's the
1: one I really don't want to have to do <laughs> uh, I, w- I would love to do the John Cleese paycheck movies uh, that's that's my favorite which I think probably won't win but I would encourage no, people no
0: that's definitely not going to win and I haven't thought really of American Pie since I was a teenager I don't revisit those films I have no nostalgia for them so I'm interested in how they hold up because speaking of telling a story they did like an American Pie reunion film like 10 years later as well
1: I remember that came out and I remember nobody caring no. Oh!
0: <laughs> It's like people do not have nostalgia for this property. Well, thank you very much for that letter. And our next letter goes, ICC appreciation. Ooh, I always like when it starts like that. And it goes, Dear Justin and Will, after a couple of months, I almost made it through your back catalog. Life feels empty now, but you helped me get through lockdown and I'm thankful for that. Oh, well, thanks. I was quite desperate looking for a new film podcast after Film Comment basically shut down and Peter Labuza's The Synthophiliacs took a turn and went deep into media studies. Ooh, poor one out for Film Comment. I did like listening to that podcast.
1: Oh, it was a great podcast. When I yeah. checked out
0: your feed and saw an episode about Luc Moulet, I knew I, was, I had the right address. That was before I noticed your specialty. Seemingly interchanging between hardcore pornography, Hong Kong action movies, obscure regional filmmakers, and established canon of film history. You were also really funny. My girlfriend, regular sinks I've gone crazy when I started giggling while listening to your podcast. It always seems like kind of surreal to me that somebody would be listening to us and like laughing at something that we said.
1: Yeah, I don't think we're funny at all. <laughs>
0: no, I just think we're very serious.
1: Thing is, I know all of Justin's shtick. Justin knows all of my shtick. So
0: we're just stone faced.
1: We're like an old married couple at this point. There's There are no surprises.
0: Any laughing that you hear me say is just canned laughter I took from one of the early episodes and then I just kind of like, you know, put in. And the letter continues. Also, I pride myself on my openness to all kinds of film you broaden my horizon. I actually checked out some kung fu films I found on Netflix and watched Matt Farr at least Druid Gladiator clone on YouTube. Didn't fall for it instantly, but I certainly saw the value in it. Also, I prefer snobby or fair. Please don't ever change anything about your choices of subject. Ooh, Druid Gladiator Clone, not the Moturn film I would recommend first. Yeah,
1: I would probably recommend Don't Let the River Beast get you or Local Legends.
0: Both those films on a double bill. You're in for life after you see those. And if you don't like them, there's no saving you. And it continues, if there is one thing that I feel is underrepresented on the podcast, it's documentary filmmaking. I'd love to hear your take on the Harvard Sensory Ethnography Lab, direct cinema of the 60s, or the work of the GPO film unit led by John Grierson before he got to Canada. I'd also be interested in a discussion on concert films. So documentary filmmakers are not something that we talk a lot uh, on this podcast. I know Uh, Will does a lot of bad ones on his other podcast, Michael and Us. Yeah, and
1: and some good ones as well. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I've, I've done so much on Michael and Us that I don't it's never really top of mind for for ICC but I mean I agree I think I would be interested in doing an episode on like maybe some documentary movements Mm -hmm.
0: yeah that'd be fun I think that I have almost kind of like not an allergy to documentaries but uh, I'm not pulled toward them because I have like the uh reverse snobbery thing where I think a lot of people like we watch a lot of documentaries because those are important films while this other trash we don't check out uh because documentaries are real and these other films don't don't have as much value, which is not true. I know that. But I think it is kind of like a cultural perception that I have to fight against. And like, you know, uh, the letter writer mentions John Grierson. That's what happened to Canadian cinema, is they went, eh, fictional films don't matter. They don't have value. Let's focus on documentary stuff, which did lead to a bunch of films, but I think also tamped down the kind of narrative movement that could have happened in Canada. And anything that did happen was people tricking documentary funds to give them money to do fictional stuff like uh, Going Down the Road and Nobody Waved Goodbye, which were uh, originally supposed to be documentaries, and then they went in the other direction. But like Will said, there's a lot of stuff that we can tackle and will tackle because we have to cover every single uh, film, filmmaker, artist... That was ever made before we end this podcast. (laughs) Yeah,
1: so between episodes number 700 and 800, expect a lot of documentary (laughs) film.
0: When we run out of everything else to talk about, the letter asks, Now it's time to give something back. Of course, there's Patreon, but if there's another way to support you, I prefer that over a platform that takes a cut into your hard earned money. Let me know if there's another way to give you money somehow. Otherwise, I'll just join the club. Maybe occasionally listen to Patreon episodes, even though they focus on the stuff that I'm less interested in. Yeah, I think
1: that's probably the best way. Although, if you want to send me some money on PayPal, just out of the goodness of your heart, by all means. Yeah, uh,
0: I, we could probably take PayPal payments from Important Cinema Club podcast at gmail.com. Send us your thousands and or millions of dollars. Or, you know, if you want to give to a Golden Ninja video, buy some Blu-rays, you can do that as well. And thanks for the letter, Rayner. And speaking of Patreon, what are we doing on Patreon this week? This Will? week
1: on Patreon, we are reflecting on the life of legacy of the late Larry Flint, by talking about 1996's The People vs. Larry Flint, the Woody Harrelson, Milos Forman biopic. Uh,
0: I ask Will, why does he not have that much interest in this movie, considering that it seemingly is a subject that he would have a passion for? We get into it, and you can listen to it for $5 a month, patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub. The link is below in the uh, write-up of this episode in case you're like, uh, I don't want to type it in. Just go click, then become a Patreon subscriber. And also, speaking of gold ninja video, the Blu-ray... Label. We have a big one that we just released.
1: What is it, Will? Well, we've talked a number of times on this podcast about Gary Graver, who was Orson Welles's loyal cinematographer, his closest collaborator, in some ways, his closest friend for the last 15 years of his life. He was also an avid collaborator of Fred Olin Ray. He filmed an Ed Woods script. He worked on hardcore pornography. He worked in all facets of uh, the Hollywood ecosystem. Gary Graver has an unbelievable career and we have a new Blu-ray release paying tribute to his career. We
0: would have done this earlier if we could have found like that one great film that we would want everybody to see. But the issue with Gary Graver is that especially the stuff that is available in the public domain, none of them really hit those beats. They're all interesting perspectives into his life. But, like, it was tough to find that one movie. So instead, we decided to do a whole package, like Will said, about his life. It's called The Other Side of Gary Graver, because, of course, Gary Graver shot Orson Welles' last film, The Other Side of the Wind. And it is an insane package that, like, looking at what we finally put together, I was like, wow, this is a real love letter to the guy, (laughs) because what is included, Will? There are a
1: couple of feature films. There's his first directorial credit, The Embracers, which features a couple of extra minutes that you can't find anywhere else.
0: Yep, a couple minutes of nudity (laughs) at the beginning of the film, because we got the film from Sean Graver, the son of Gary Graver.
1: There is an exploitation classic called There Was a Little Girl. Also
0: known as And when she was bad, which is kind of Graver right before he got into hardcore pornography. So there's like a bunch of like softcore sex scenes. But it's also really weird and a super fun portrait of L.A., almost like repulsion-esque at its kind of hallucinatory properties.
1: There is an unfinished documentary that he shot for Orson Welles called Filming the Trial, in which Welles talks about just that, filming his film The Trial.
0: And then we also have a Gary Graver movie, which is... Is Gary Graver just talking about all of the films he directed, other than the pornography ones, and just discussing about his frustrations, what he liked, and its feature lengths.
1: And I believe we got the uncut version as well, which isn't available anywhere. That's the real reason to buy this set, this incredible film of Gary Graver giving you his hard-won wisdom, talking about every mainstream film that he directed. But in addition to that, there are a slew of special features— there's a commentary track by Justin and myself on The Embracers. There are video featurettes and discussions talking about uh, Gary Graver's cinematography credits and his work in pornography. There are also interviews with people who knew him, his biographer, Andrew Rausch, and the actress Jewel Shepard, who was in Party Camp. Uh, there, there's more, right? I mean, oh my god. There's a whole conversation that I have with the two writers of The Schlock Pit about
0: Graver's role in pornography and his work Fred. With- and Ray, Because those uh, two guys are co-writing the uh, biography with Andrew J. Roush. So we got like, this is a Gary Graver smorgasbord here. There's liner notes by Will Sloan, including his interview with Sean Graver and Jeff Graver as well. Oh, there's so much stuff.
1: Anybody interested in any facet of film in Hollywood will find something to sate their appetite And it's here. a
0: mere $15, limited to 500 copies. You can pick it up at goldninjavideo.com. So,
1: Justin, what are we doing next? next? Week,
0: week a filmmaker that every young director has close to their hearts if they grew up in the 90s and early 2000s it is robert rodriguez yeah and
1: robert rodriguez i was interested to do this too because he's somebody who was one of those sundance guys like Tarantino and Kevin Smith and uh, Steven Soderbergh. One of those guys who really popped off, you know, with all those stories about how he made El Mariachi for such a small amount of money, uh, selling his plasma, apparently, to fund it. And then I feel like in recent years, he has just kind of faded away. I mean, he's remained prolific, but you you don't hear people talk about him the way that they talked about him 20 years ago. And if anything, from what I've seen, it seems that his craft has deteriorated.
0: Yeah, Rob Rodriguez is a fascinating, filmmaker who has followed his passions and has also seemingly got lazier as he's gone along, almost realizing I don't need to make all this effort uh, to uh, actually entertain the audience. And his career has been really interesting from being the guy who made the $7,000 movie and taking over Sundance because he also went into the kid movie racket. He started his own film studio. He started his own TV channel and he just made a big budget flop that was Battle Angel Alita for James Cameron. He directed a bunch of episodes of The Mandalorian as well, the big Star Wars Disney Plus show. So he's still out there, but I don't think he has the same fan base that he did when he was coming up with El Mariachi, Desperado, Faculty. And I think we're going to explore like what that evolution is, and we're going to do it by watching El Mariachi, uh, Shark Boy and Lava Girl. <laughs> And of course,
1: Machete. Well, I look forward to that, even though I think some of those movies are going to be maybe a little bit difficult to revisit. You
0: mean two thirds of those movies? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. And maybe even three thirds. Who knows? Uh,
0: yeah. Oh, you know what? El Mariachi, while not my favorite, it does have that kind of like can do attitude that it's still fun to watch it now. So until next week, my name is Justin the Clip. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Justin here, interrupting briefly to remind people that we will be hosting another screening of the Important Cinema Club, Tech this Friday starting at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more information, check out my Twitter at DeClueJ, D-E-C-L-O-U-X on the letter J, or just visit twitch.tv slash Important Cinema Club at 7 p.m. EST this Friday, February 19th. I would also like to thank our new Patreon subscribers, who include MC, Adam Nightingale, Stephen Mortland, JT60564, Lobster Johnson, not Thomas Vintberg, and Jeremy Hawkins. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. And if you're not a patron, we're so close to being the 400. Help us get there and join the important cinema club. Officially, And with that out of the way, we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Oh man. It feels like we're stuck in like a Groundhog Day loop where Martin Scorsese says something incredibly realistic and true, like everyone's just making content. That's what movies are now. And then everybody's chit-chatting about it, dunking on uh, some person that has like a hundred followers and like a thousand replies when they say like, oh, Martin Scorsese's wrong. You know, Marvel movies are this. I was looking at it today and like, it's caught in like a feedback loop where people are angrily replying to someone that said something sarcastically. So it's like they're not even disagreeing with each other anymore. I don't
1: know how people can keep taking the bait over this stuff. Well,
0: Twitter is just as guilty, right? Well,
1: yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the whole Martin Scorsese defense squad that forms every time that he says something oftentimes when he doesn't even say anything like somebody with a hundred followers will say something like martin scorsese only makes movies about mobsters and he makes them for white bros and then there's a whole day of people being like um haven't you seen kundun you know or this or that or like somebody will say oh he glamorizes crime and then people are like oh yeah uh, uh the end of goodfellas really glamorous wasn't it and you know maybe maybe there was a place for that discourse cycle, like. A year ago, the first 500 times it happened but oh god i don't know but you
0: retweet you tweeted about it though right will you couldn't you couldn't help yourself
1: well i did tweet about it today but i'll tell you what bothered me and the thing that i tweeted about was there's there's a discourse cycle that this has inspired a sub discourse cycle about old movies
0: oh yeah i saw that tweet someone was like i don't watch anything made before 1970 and it's like don't take the bait
1: man well there's that and also i saw lexi alexander tweet something like yeah
0: yeah i think she was jumping off of that discourse which it's like some reporter wrote that that like citizen kane is hieroglyphics and uh, such musty stuff mustier than citizen Kane. well
1: and the way that i feel about it is i think it's just like really sad i don't necessarily begrudge people who are like who, who don't watch old movies or they're not interested in them or if some people all they want to do is watch uh marvel movies or whatever i think life is hard watch whatever makes you happy and whatever gets you through this life but I feel sad when I see people who are, I guess, designated thought leaders who are being like, actually, don't be curious about anything.
0: Yeah, that's such a bummer. I mean, wait, is Lexi Alexander a designated thought leader? Why does she keep being retweeted? I don't understand.
1: Well, I mean, she tweeted something along the lines of... Old movies, you know, many of them uh, are racist and sexist anyway. Yes. Well, I mean, sure. But I mean, many new movies are like imperialist propaganda, too. I mean, I think I'm bothered by the assumption that we have nothing to learn from the past. Oh,
0: I agree. Or that you can't enjoy something from the past because... The form that we have now is its ultimate form. We have reached perfection, and there is no value in seeing what was before or what it evolved and from. And I just
1: think like, it's such a, an incredible gift that we have film from 120 years ago. I mean, I was watching on YouTube just the other day the first Charlie Chaplin short with The Tramp which is Kid Auto Races in Venice. And they went in 1914 to a soapbox derby that was happening in California, and they just improvised six minutes of comedy where Charlie Chaplin is dressed as the tramp, and he's like, he's pretending to harangue a newsreel photographer. And... You see all the people in the audience and they don't know who Charlie Chaplin is. They think it's a real tramp. He's not famous yet. That's how old this film is. And you see the real people, you see the way they were dressed, you know? You see what what a soapbox derby looked like 107 years ago. I mean, I think that's just an incredible privilege and why wouldn't you be interested in that? And that's just putting aside the fact that like there are so many so many old movies that are that are so uh, entertaining and accessible. I mean, you know, if I were selling somebody on, on an old movie, I would say watch a Buster Keaton film, watch Detour. I just feel sad that some people um, will kind of stubbornly not allow themselves uh, the privilege of that.
0: You almost want to take them aside and ask them, like, why do you feel this way? Like, do you think that you are smarter than the people back then? Because like, our life sucks in different ways than it did back then. And we've done a lot of improvements, but like, we're still people, like the movies have not gotten that much better. It's like saying like, you know, music now, So much better because we we know so much more stuff. It's way more catchy. It's like, well, that's not true. It's the same thing with movies. Style has changed. Black and white uh, went to color. But black and white, like it can be so much more dramatically powerful because of the tones that are being shown on screen. Like it doesn't need to reflect life. The stuff that you watch on Netflix doesn't look like real life. It looks like
1: desaturated garbage. I mean, fuck, you watch a movie like Rebecca, the Netflix Rebecca, and then you put it up next to Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. And it's like, tell me what movie is more entertaining. Tell me what movie is more beautiful to look at. Tell me what movie is better paced. And OK, that's just a matter of taste. Let's take the Lexi Alexander argument that movies are uh, so much more progressive now and we should consign all of that other stuff to the dustbin of history you know, in the first half of the 20th century, it was possible for working class people to make films. It was an industry that was built on working class people. And of course it was an industry that was also built on racial subjugation and uh, subjugation of women. I mean, that's absolutely true also, but now that continues to persist and it's made all by the children of millionaires. It's made by Sam Levinson. <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, don't you mean visionary director Sam Levinson, as the trailer says? Yes,
1: or Jason Reitman. And uh, all the Disney movies get approved by the United States uh, Defense Office.
0: We have to make the argument as well that there are those little movies, but you have to go hunting for them, and they they still have value. But to discount everything that's come before as well, even stuff coming out of Hollywood when it was a factory system, so stuff could get by because so much content had to be. Made. Ah, I just don't understand. It makes me, it doesn't make me angry. It's like you, it makes me sad that someone would like limit themselves like that. And they wouldn't have, you know, the intellectual curiosity to give themselves experiences that you need to go hunt down as and that is different from the everyday. Yeah,
1: I think if somebody says, look, I've had a long day at work, What I really want to do is watch, I don't know. Law and Order again or something like that. Law and Order or or watch Love Island on a streaming service. I would say, fine, totally fair. Do whatever makes you happy. But to uh, go out and use your platform and be like, uh, we should shut down all inquiry into the past. Yeah, just bums me out, man. I, I'm just repeating myself at this point, but it's sad. But you know what we got to do? We just got to continue our humble mission as uh, soldiers of cinema to keep making the classics come alive on this That's podcast.
0: That's right. Is that like anytime someone sees someone tweet that, they should respond with, hey, have you checked out the Important Cinema Club? They do uh high- <laughs> <laughs> oh please don't
1: show them our jacques turner episode yeah, yeah.
0: that's right uh or luke moulet episode or our sean costello episode
1: <laughs> <laughs> ah the real classics i mean there's nothing problematic in sean costello's Oof, films not
0: at all okay perfect okay perfect okay perfect